Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, it's time of year for the year in review for the federal and provincial governments in a 2023 look ahead. Muhammad Ali, senior consultant with Crestview Strategies, will do that for us. Have you noticed that seemingly everybody's getting sick right now? It's not just you. It looks like something called immunity debt is to blame. What is it? Well, pathologist Dr. Don Bodish will uh, shine the light on that for us. And you're looking to buy a new car? You may have to wait maybe a few years. David Adams, president and CEO of the Global Automakers of Canada, will explain why. All coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. A lot of stuff uh, year-end here, too, uh, and you've noticed this on on television and radio as the politicians wind down the year. uh, Some retrospectives on what could have happened, what should have happened, what didn't happen, what did happen. And uh, we want to start the program with that. Uh, and a couple of op-ed pieces I'm sure you've seen in uh, whichever uh, newspapers that uh, or whatever you uh, read with these days about politics. And uh, the interesting one in the Globe and Mail that I wanted to touch on, too, it, it's kind of a an assessment of, of this past year from the uh, the government and the, from the prime minister right on down. Uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And uh, we'll let you decide how much of each uh, is prevalent there. And to do that, so pleased to welcome back to the program, Muhammad Ali, who is a senior consultant for uh, Creative Strategies. Uh, Muhammad, thanks for joining us. Good to have you with us on a snowy, busy Friday. <laughs> thanks for having me on this snowy day. Let's uh, let's talk. I want to maybe lead right in with the oil here, and it, it kind of references a, a couple of the comments both uh, Justin Trudeau and Pierre Pauly have made over the last couple of days. Uh, and the the one I guess that really seemed to get the prime minister's goat was uh, was Pauly of telling his audience that Canada is broken, and of course the the prime minister refuted that and said Canada may not be broken. But the first line in the editorial in the Globe, I'm sure you've seen, says Canada may not be broken, but the cracks are showing. Uh, from a divisive election campaign in 2021, uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau had an opportunity, not to mention an obligation, to try to heal those divisions that we had. And uh, they basically saying he failed. Would you concur with that, or is there a different approach that you might want to take? You know, I, I read the piece, and, and I was actually at the the, the venue that uh, the Prime Minister was giving that speech about Canada is not broken. Uh, he definitely was uh, was come, trying to deliver the message that, look, it's not doom and gloom. Like we need to to look forward to optimism. There is a lot of positivity around the country that we need to cherish and work towards. Like there is work to do, and is that was his message? Whether it's on healthcare, indigenous reconciliation, obviously the economic recovery and fighting inflation, there are you know steps to a, a brighter future, uh, and it's not all doom and gloom as as Pierre Polliver has stated. Now the the globe piece, you know, I think it it, it went. It was quite a uh, harsh, I would say, uh, assessment of the prime minister's past 12 months. I think there is challenges that he dealt with that uh, that he rose to the occasion. When we look at the Ukraine uh, invasion by Russia and the Canada's response, Canada was a leader in the response and coordinating the democratic uh, response uh, across the Western world uh, against Russia. So that, you know, it, it quite was an important thing. You know, he was dealing with a, a convoy situation, which I know the, the Globe, you know, pointed out as being a failing of his. But ultimately, there were uh, factors on all sides that played into the uh, emboldeningness of the convoy that existed and became sort of a national, a national and international headline. So there were challenging issues and that have permeated throughout the year that may have overseen, overshadowed some of the positive work that the Prime Minister did. For example, 
he has attracted billions and billions of dollars in new investment to the country that has delivered jobs right in, in southwestern Ontario, GTA areas, particularly with the automotive sector, uh, boosting supply chains. You know, there are factors that he is dealing with that I think can be just packaged into one that he failed or he succeeded. I think it's a it was a very challenging work in progress type of year is how I would assess it. Let me roll back to the to the convoy thing, and we'll, there's a number of other points I want to get to. But I'm I'm always surprised and maybe a little baffled when I see some of these comments, these year end comments, about how the the government mishandled that. And and I mean, we just went through the inquiry and got all kinds of testimony there. But and the people that are condemning uh, the prime minister and others for this, they're doing this in hindsight. I don't remember hearing too many of those voices at the time, unless they were sympathetic to the to the convoy itself. I mean, we had a couple of prime minister premiers rather. Than, oh, I love the truckers. Well, it wasn't just the truckers that were in downtown Ottawa, and and what I was glad to see in the inquiry. Uh, was that they didn't just talk to the politicians. They talked to the people in Ottawa that but were basically being held hostage in their own city. And I think you have to have it in that perspective. And and I, I listen, he didn't handle it perfectly. I don't know that anybody could. But the question I asked, and I know they asked at the inquiry a number of times, is, all right, what would you have done? Uh, you know, well, he should have handled it differently. Why? He should have resigned because that's what they were there for. They wanted to boot him out of office and do the elected government. At some point, you got to stand up tall and just say, "Look, at you guys aren't going to do this." Agreed, and you know th that group was calling for the overthrow of the government, let alone his resignation. Yeah. So, I mean, I, uh, last I checked, we we aren't uh, we we don't condone that behavior in other countries, and so when it's happening, well, in there's another thing to this too. I, I just you know, because I know everybody there was not an insurrectionist; they all weren't queuing on. We get that, but there are some people there that were just anti-vaxxers. Uh, but they didn't seem to, to understand the issue that most of what they were complaining about were provincial mandates, not federal mandates. Uh, we, you know, so why weren't they at Queen's Park? Why weren't they in Edmonton? But, you know, because it's more convenient, I guess, to go to Ottawa. Uh, the only major one that that the federal government was, in check, well, civil servants, certainly, uh, was, was uh, you know, truckers to be vaccinated going across the border. But even if he had capitulated on that, Mohammed, and said, all right, the American government has already put the same order too, so they, they still couldn't go if they weren't vaccinated. It, it was a, just a mishmash of ideas, and, and we'd spend very little time talking about the practicality of it right now. And I, 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 I'm not suggesting he was perfect in this, but I wouldn't hang that on him. I think you know this was an insurrection of it of the the nation's capital, not to the extreme as we saw in, in Washington the year before that. But you didn't know that at the time, did you? No, and I think that, I think you said it perfectly, uh, Bill. It, it's there are w far too many factors and things that were going on that people just sort of ignored. They just simply wanted to protest or or you know occupy in their minds whatever they felt was like Justin Trudeau is the face of it. Even though, to your point, there are provincial and municipal components to a lot of the mandates, the implementation of them. You know, it wasn't the federal government said that you can't go outside to a playground. It was Doug Ford who tried to do that, right? It wasn't uh, the prime minister implementing curfews like Premier Legault was in Quebec, right? there. So it's there was, I think, a devoid of understanding with that group or and at times where people were trying to dissect this. I mean, the, the entire emergency inquiry sort of unpacked that entirety, that, in fact, the prime minister was, you know, may not have been perfect, but he tried to not go to the extreme solution that was the Emergency Act usage.
he held held back, held back, held back, held back until he had no choice. Uh, and we've seen, we were talking to you and I just the other day, of course, about, you know, the popularity or, or lack of, of the government. And, and the the, pop, the approval rating for the prime minister is actually, it hasn't spiked, but it's gone up considerably in the months. And, and a lot of people point to the testimony he gave during the inquiry, that it was level-headed and, and practical, et cetera. And I think a lot of people are saying, oh, yeah, yeah. And that that, that sort of thing resonates, I think, with the public. Uh, you know, they they're not looking it through the the prism of, of uh, you know their political ideology. They're just saying, yeah, maybe in hindsight he did a pretty decent job given what he was faced with. And so that's one element. Would by the way, which is not to suggest that we're going to say, hey, everything was rosy this year, because uh, the Globe and Mail editorial does also rightly point out a couple of uh, major uh, shortcomings here. One, of course, is is ethics, and you know Minister Mary Ying, I guess, is the latest in that, but not the first one or the last one. And uh, I, it gets a little tiresome when you hear these stories all the time about people abusing their authority. Yeah, I think the the, the minister uh, clearly stated that she should have withheld herself from or recused herself from any of that decision making. Uh, and I think it was a lot, you know, as she stated, a lapse in judgment. And I think ultimately the challenges that are to come, uh, you know, around healthcare, around sort of addressing the inflationary impacts that Canadians are facing, you know, still addressing the housing situation with, you know, supply and, and whatnot. There is so much to, to work towards. And I think the prime minister, as he's sort of pivoted into his end of year sort of interviews that he's doing um, across a number of networks and, and radio stations, uh, has sort of outlined some of these upcoming pieces and challenges that he is going to work towards. And, and, and I will say this, I know people have speculated, I think he's going to stick around, given that how he's sort of the energy and the focus that he has now on the issues for that he wants to address in 2023. Uh, it's going to be, you know, I think the early first quarter, second quarter are going to be big sort of uh, milestone year moments for, for this government. And just to your point, uh, the foreign affairs aspect of things, he didn't shine in the first part, but as you say, when the war started in Ukraine, Canada responded before a lot of other countries did. Uh, and I thought they they grew on that. I mean, you know, they they you know we don't have the 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 firepower to be able to offer weaponry like the United States and some other places have done that. But we showed support. And on the other side of the other world, uh, with the rising problem in China and the uh, the the Asia Pacific uh, concerns that were there, uh, Canada's at the table there, and and they were slow. I mean, you know, it took them a long time to get there, but they were there. And and the I think the editorial points that out, and I think rightly so. This government got better at a lot of stuff uh, as as the year went on, and uh, and that's that's a positive thing to see. That okay, we, you know, we got to ramp up our game here, and I think they did that in many areas. Yeah, I think you know credit where credit is due, and I think yeah, it was a little bit slow, but I think the the final realization like we got to move away from this the China dynamic, they were able to finally release the Michaels. I think that's something people have forgotten as well, and in, in the Global Mail in their editorial that that was a very difficult. Uh, situation. And so once that sort of opened up, they were able to do the next steps that they needed to do to address and push back against the China piece. And there it's a number of pieces in action. The Indo-Pacific strategy, I think, is going to help sort of launch them uh, towards that sort of diversification, both on an economic and uh, security perspective. But I think the next stage for them to look towards the foreign affairs side is you know, how do they get more integrated with the Canada, U.S., Mexico, and the sort of NATO element? Because, you know, Christopher Freeland, as she had uh, you know, articulated in her speech in D.C., 
was that we need to think about an ally shoring, a friend shoring, and how does NATO become sort of this economic hub so that we can push back against the, the autocratic countries of the world like Russia, China, Iran, and others that clearly don't align with our, our principles, but also inhibit our ability to function and be secure in our supply chains, our economy, our cultural and social uh, components of our society. Uh, so uh, the $64 million question, then. we got a couple of seconds left here. Is there going to be an election next year? I don't think there'll be an election next year. I think this always the speculation will always be there for uh, a minor parliament. But, you know, the, the liberals are going to obviously calculate and even within cabinet, they're going to say who, who wants to stick around long term. So you could probably likely see a cabinet shuffle at some point in 2023 uh, by virtue of ministers saying that I'm, I'm going to step back and not run for re-election. But I think ultimately, if the liberal NDP deal held, holds up, which I think it will for the most part, uh, I think 2023 will be an election-free year. Mohammed, as always, uh, appreciate your time today and your perspective on this. Thanks so much, and uh, and for your contributions through the uh, the year as well. It's always a pleasure having you on the program. Enjoy the holidays, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you. Happy holidays to you. To you too, Mohammed Ali, senior consultant with Crestview Strategies. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We all know the challenges. Uh, you know, hospital wards, especially children's wards, are overflowing uh, right across the country, not just here in Ontario. Uh, shortage of medicines. You know, go to any right now and try to get children's Tylenol. The shelves are bare. What is happening and what's causing this? I, I mean, we've gone through flu seasons almost every year and it's never been like this. Well, one theory is something called immunity debt. And uh, we want to explain that to you because a lot of people are looking and saying that may well be one of the major causes here. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Dr. Don Bodish. Uh, Dr. Bodish is a tenured professor of pathology and molecular medicine at McMaster University, also the Canada Research Chair in Aging and Immunity with the DeGroote uh, Infection uh, Disease Research Foundation. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for making some time for us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's a complicated topic. Well, see, try to sift through this, right? I, I was surprised when I saw this. And then as, as I more, read more about it last evening, I'm thinking it, it kind of makes sense. Explain to us, if you could, what is immunity debt? Yeah, so the problem with all the concepts in immunology is this, an easy answer is never quite the right one. And in fact, we think there's actually many things going on here. So let me break it down for you. The virus sure. RSV, which you've heard a lot about, respiratory syncytial virus, is one of the viruses that's been really problematic in this wave. It's always been really problematic in younger people and older people. And in general, a kid, a child will come into contact with it before two years old. And if they're one of those unlucky children who, for reasons we still don't understand, is going to get really sick, it tends to be when they're younger than two. There's some evidence, though, that because the season was low in the 2020-2021, there weren't many viruses because we were masking and socially distancing. Um, some of those kids came into contact for the first time when they were three or four. So in effect, we've had a little bit of like a double cohort where there's twice as many kids who got uh, ill in this period. And I wouldn't say it's an immunity debt per se. It's just your first time is your worst time for people who are, who are predisposed. Now with influenza, it's a little bit of a different story because influenza is such a changeable virus that protection one year is not so much helpful in the next year. But one of the things that some jurisdictions have seen is that almost all the hospitalizations were in babies less than six months old. 
babies less than six months old, they don't have an immunity debt because they weren't around very long. But what they do have a debt of is mom's antibodies. Pregnancy, pregnant women should be immunized for influenza. And it's been shown that when pregnant women are immunized, that zero to six month period, those babies are generally protected. But unfortunately, due to all the politics and vaccine hesitancy around vaccination, pregnant women have not been getting vaccinated at the rates they were pre-pandemic. So we can attribute some of those hospitalizations to falling uh, immunization rates in pregnant women. Now, whether the lack of exposure to other common colds and things like that has led us to become more susceptible to common colds is really unclear because again, they're very, very changeable and different. So I think the take home message is that there are many things happening at the same time. Oh, I should also add the lack of fever suppressing medications. In the olden days, before we had fever suppressing medications, many, many kids died of dehydration. If you've ever had a baby or a toddler, someone too young to reason with who's had a strong fever, they won't eat or drink. And when they don't eat or drink, they become dehydrated. So there is a theory that without parents having access to these, some of these hospitalizations are due to dehydration, uh, which is easily fixed, but definitely requires medical care. So you add it all up and you can see that there are many, many factors at play, not all of which can be attributed to not having been exposed to viruses for a couple of years. But that's, I know that's kind of a back, which some people still don't seem to grasp that, that mm -hmm. if we're exposed to them, we do build up antibodies. We build up, not necessarily immunity, but I mean, you know, our body knows how to fight it. Uh, the fact that we've been isolated for two and a half years, many of us anyway, uh, you know, working mm -hmm. uh, remotely, uh, you know, we're not going to parties. We're not doing a lot of that stuff uh, mm -hmm. probably helped us through COVID, but did, did it set us up for what we're seeing now with the kids? It's unclear because, like I said, some of these kids are being hospitalized before you would expect them to have, you know, the very, very young ones before they would be expected to be exposed to things. And uh, some of the hospitalizations, like I said, are attributable to them not being exposed early and being later, for example, RSV. Influenza is really, really hard to say, really hard to say, because one influenza, uh, one year does not necessarily protect you from the next year. And this one does seem to be a pretty nasty version of influenza. So it's unclear how much a previous exposure may or may not have helped. This particular strain called H3N2, which is so problematic, has always been really, really bad in kids and older adults as well. So uh, difficult. And I mean, I guess we're definitely seeing a lot of older adults being hospitalized as well for influenza right now. And, and those folks have had decades of experience with this virus. So the degree to which it's lack of exposure and the degree to which this is just a particularly bad influenza is really unclear. I guess the other thing that people need to understand is that co-infections, when you have two things at once, is always problematic. And in a normal year, our influenza, our RSV seasons are separate. They don't occur at the same time. But it's well documented that especially in kids, if they have RSV and influenza or influenza and another virus, they tend to do much, much worse. So the fact that everything came at once is also probably attributable to the severity of some of these infections. Uh, is uh, I just will throw another factor out here too that I'm, I'm just anecdotally I'm just looking at some comments on social media when I was reading about this article. Uh, the fact that we've kind of let our defenses down, as you mentioned, uh, not everybody got vaccinated, not everybody took the mm -hmm. flu vaccine for that matter, and uh, there are still some physicians that I've seen uh, making comments on this that say like we should be masking again till we get out of this season. Is is that yeah. too extreme well, an idea? 
this is, I, you know, you don't ever want to have a child so sick that they need hospital care and can't get it. And I think the other thing that people don't seem to grasp is that when the hospitals are overwhelmed, inevitably the quality of care goes down. Any child who needs ventilation or serious medical care is not going to just bounce right back and get back to school and life quickly. Those are really serious infections. So I've been masking indoors religiously, not wanting to contribute to the spread of these infections. And I will point out, Ontario has the lowest influenza vaccination rates of all the provinces. The Canadian goal has always been to get 80% of the population vaccinated. We rarely get to 70% with older adults, and we rarely hit 20% with kids. So the fact that we've done so poorly in influenza vaccination is definitely a problem. And the other thing that people don't understand, they may have been hearing about reports from the UK, the US, about the rise in things like group A strep, or the strep throat, uh, flesh eating disease, um, and the bacteria that can cause many, many of these infections. That's because after you have a serious viral infection, influenza or RSV, there's a period of susceptibility to these bacterial infections. And so some of these hospitalizations are due to having these bacterial infections that would have been prevented had you never had a viral infection to start with. So again, vaccination is such an easy way to help mitigate this, this terrible season. And I encourage everyone to get their kids and themselves vaccinated. And on that note, uh, <laughs> a cautionary note, uh, we'll, we'll have to wrap it up. We're just about out of time. Doctor, thank you so much for this. I really appreciate you uh, coming on and, and explaining this because I, I know a lot of parents were very concerned about what's causing this and where we're going. And I think we got, got a much more clear picture. Uh, all the best of the season. Merry Christmas to you. And uh, we'll talk again soon, I hope, Doctor. Merry Christmas. Thanks so much. Take care. Dr. Don Bodish uh, from McMaster University and uh, Professor of Pathology and Molecular Medicine there. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Hey, is there a new car in your future? Uh, it may be well into your future, by the way. We know the supply and demand issues going on in the auto industry right now. And uh, there are a lot of frustrated people that would like to get a new vehicle, especially in light of some of the government programs that have been in place about what they're going to be building and, and how they're going to be powered, etc. cetera. Uh, car prices are surging, though, and wait times are growing a long, long time now as the global shortage of microchips and others uh, seem to be factors into this. So what is going on? How can we fix it? And how long is this going to be happening? Uh, to address all of those, we're so pleased to welcome to the program David Adams. David is the president and CEO of the Global Automakers of Canada. Uh, David, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Well, thanks for having me, Bill. Appreciate it. Uh, even during the pandemic and even during some of the lockdowns, et cetera, uh, I, I bought a car in 2019, but I mean, you still go to the dealership to get servicing and things like this. And, and right. of course, I think the thing that shocked an awful lot of us, David, in, in those times was you look out back and, and there weren't that many cars on the lot. Uh, and that was a problem. Uh, let me start there and then we'll work to some of the other things about the timing here. Is that getting better? Is the supply getting better? And are, are dealers able to get their hands on, on, machine, on vehicles? Well, I think it very much depends on the manufacturer, but the situation is uh, is improving slightly, but not not very quickly. And I think that's the the challenge for everybody right now is that um, you know the the whole uh, inventory challenge, which really started with with COVID, still hasn't uh, you know worked through the system, and anticipate that it's still going to be perhaps through the end of 2023 before things get rectified in terms of the supply and demand coming back into you know, some sort of balance with one another. So 
to that point, though, and and I know it, as you mentioned, it, it it's going to vary from you know de- not just dealership to dealership, but auto manufacturers too. You know, Toyota may be different from Ford, etc. But mm-hmm. but if I walk into a, a showroom next week and say, okay, I want a brand new car, uh, this is what I'm looking for, you know, and, and you you talk about the specs, etc. Invariably, it's probably going to have to be ordered. How long would that take? Again, it depends on the manufacturer, but I think we're, we've gone from the system that, that most people were used to. You know, if you if you couldn't find it on the lot or a dealer couldn't trade for it, then you'd be looking at a situation of maybe something like four to six weeks to have the, the vehicle built and shipped and whatnot. But right now, you know, more often than not, as you say, the consumer coming in is not likely to find the vehicle on the lot. Um, uh, production has been problematic for most manufacturers. So you're looking at, you know, a lot of cases, a uh, situation of, you know, months, not weeks to get that, that new vehicle. Yeah. I'm sure you saw the story that, uh, that we were referring to too. Uh, the one guy actually was told it was going to be up to two years for the car, but, and I'm not even quite sure what the, uh, the dealership, I think it was a Toyota. Uh, so you got a number of different things, supply chain issues here, but not withstanding the fact that uh, a lot of these cars are manufactured in Canada right now. You still have to get the parts for them, right? Well, and that's that's just the thing. And, you know, the the automotive industry has probably been uh, the, the most significant industry in the world that had a finely tuned global supply chain. And when we had uh, COVID hit, it wasn't just a matter of the uh, the parts. It was also a matter of the logistics and transportation and getting getting parts to the factories wherever they might be located on a just in time basis, which is you know, essentially means for those that don't know, uh, you know, auto manufacturers really don't carry any inventory. They plan on having trucks arrive basically when uh, parts and components are needed on the line, right when they're needed on the line. So it reduces the carrying costs for manufacturers, which is all well and good when everything works. But when uh, a wrench gets thrown into the gears like uh, like COVID and, uh, and whatnot, um, you know, the whole system, I think, what COVID has done is highlighted the the vulnerabilities and fragility of the whole global supply chain. Well, let's get into one of the items that, that I know we've heard an awful lot about. Uh, and that's of course the materials that go in there. I mean, you know, yes. I guess to, to, to simplify everything, I mean, basically when you go and buy a, buy a car, you're buying a computer. I mean, cause that's what the car really is. And, and you need parts for that computer. And uh, there's only a few people that make them. And a lot of them are in China right now, and uh, they're not making them as quickly as, as they should be. Uh, is there any end in sight for that? Well, um, in terms of the the chip crisis, um, you know, the United States has taken some very significant action in terms of trying to build out domestic mm-hmm. capacity for uh, for microchips. But you know, whether it's a, a battery factory, a vehicle manufacturer, a chip manufacturer, all of those things take time to come online. So while uh, action has been taken to address uh, the chip crisis. It, it will still take some time for um, you know the production and whatnot to actually start flowing again. So um, measures have been taken, but as I said at the outset, it's still going to take more time to uh, to have that situation addressed. Some time ago, I was talking to one of your colleagues uh, about that very issue, David, about the chips. And uh, said they are still making them, but he said, you know, when, when this auto industry slowed down uh, production because of the COVID and the lockdowns, uh, they were other people were buying those chips. I mean, they are computer chips, and, and they can be used for other things besides inside of an automobile. Uh, and so once you find that other market, it's very difficult sometimes to say, okay, swing it back over here now. So the production has to ramp up, doesn't it? And not just 
in China we're talking about, but I mean, here in North America, as we've all heard the debate recently that, you know, we've got to start making that stuff here uh, so that we're not as dependent on, on, on chips, but you can't just flick a switch and make that happen. Can you? Exactly. And I think the, uh, you know, the other factor, coincident factor with uh, automakers sort of looking at the COVID situation when it first happened, anticipating demand was going to go down, which it did. Um, but demand went up for all sorts of other uh, home electronics, computers, uh, smartphones and whatnot, as as people sort of hibernated inside during COVID. So you had uh, automakers shutting off demand and demand increasing for all sorts of other things that use microchips. So it was sort of a, a bit of a perfect storm. But, uh, you know, you're right, Bill, you can't flick a switch and, and make all of this happen all at once. And, you know, to go back to the original uh, point about the, the price of new vehicles and availability of new vehicles, you know, the other challenge is, is that we have a global supply chain for a reason, which is trying to try and get the you know, the best possible quality at the lowest possible cost. And when we try and reshore some of that production, whether it's microchips or batteries or what have you for geopolitical concerns, then that doesn't necessarily mean that we're keeping that equation the same. So what I mean by that is that invariably, if we start reshoring things, then uh, it's more than likely that prices of components and parts are going to go up, not down. So that then adds to the ongoing pressure of uh, you know the price of the final good, the vehicle at the end of the day. And we've seen those prices increases, and I'm sure you've heard, uh, and I certainly have, uh, from consumers that say, hey, wait a second here. You know, they, they've gone up considerably since, well, 2019 when I was kicking the tires on the lot, and they had, it was X number of dollars, and now it's considerably more. Uh, but again, you know, that's a supply issue, and if, you, it's, it's gonna co- if the parts are going to cost more, it stands to reason the car is going to cost more, I guess. Right. So where do we stand, and, and where do we stand with the pivot that the industry is making, David? I mean, you know, governments of all kinds, including you know President Biden, Prime Minister Trudeau, Doug Ford here in Ontario, uh, have all made this commitment to to converting to EVs, and there have been some pretty tight timelines uh, about when they want to see a majority of them on the road these days. Um, but that's again going to take time, and I, and I know that the premier was talking about you know what well we can mine the stuff for the batteries right up here in northern Ontario, uh, but that's going to take years. I mean that, that's I, I was told to take sometimes five to six years to even get permits for that stuff, so it's not going to happen overnight. But is the industry ready for this, and and can they take what is expected to be a major commercial uh, consumer pivot over to to EVs? Well, yeah, I think they can. I think the uh, the the real factor is is time, as you said at, at the outset. And you know, I think um, you know some are cynical and and seem to believe that the auto industry is dragging its feet in this transition. And uh, you know, the last figure I I had seen is that from Bloomberg was that the global automo- automotive industry has committed. trillion to making this transition. So it's not like anybody is dragging their feet. I think the all automakers are fully committed to the transition. They know that they have to make that transition. Um, You know, there's no debate about climate science anymore. We all know that we're in a a climate emergency and automakers need to do that their part. So, you know, most if not all automakers understand that, you know, globally, I think at this point that by 2035, uh, that's when most jurisdictions are looking to have 100% of the vehicles sold be uh, electric vehicles. Um, 
now, how we get there is a different story, and different countries have taken a different approach. And uh, in Canada, I guess day before yesterday, the federal government announced that they were going to introduce a, a federal zero emission vehicle mandate, which would um, force manufacturers to sell increasing percentages of of zero emission vehicles between 2026 and 2035, when it would be 100 percent. Um, you know, we can debate the, mer the merits of whether a, a mandate is a good approach or not. But from my perspective, whether there's a mandate or not, um, that's the direction that vehicle manufacturers are moving in. And uh, I'm not sure that a mandate is necessarily going to help that situation out. Well, I always thought it was kind of a silly idea. I mean, you're actually, there, there's a punitive measure and a financial penalty if you don't comply with the, you know, the percentages. And I think that's ridiculous uh, because a lot of this is, 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 I guess the auto industry always has been, isn't it, David? It's market driven. One of the stats here that, that jumps out at me is uh, it's, we were, I think it only five or 6% of, of the autos sold in Ontario right now are, are EVs. Uh, and they want to ramp that up to uh, about five or six times that much in only a couple of years. That's going to take a huge transition, and you're going to have to convince an awful lot of people that EVs are what they need. Well, for sure, and I think the uh, the automotive industry has always been about three things, uh, as the joke goes: product, product, and and product. And uh, you know, when you look at product for most people, they they're looking for a vehicle that is affordable a uh, vehicle that is convenient to use and a vehicle that meets their utility needs and ideally a vehicle that is uh, attractive to them as well and right now i would suggest that uh, for a lot of people if their only vehicle is going to be a, an ev um, you know things will improve but we're really probably only ticking about two of those four boxes right at the moment because uh, evs generally at this point in time are about 17 to twenty thousand dollars more than internal combustion engine vehicles. And yes, there's a federal rebate and some provinces have provincial rebates to try and offset that, but it, it doesn't go the whole way there. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's a challenge for people. And look, let's be fair. Um, people that own EVs will save money over the, uh, you know, the lifetime ownership of their vehicle. But the challenge is, is that most people don't look at things that way or purchase that things that way. They, they know they've got five hundred or seven hundred dollars a month for uh, a car payment, uh, and you know to ask them to pay, you know, nine hundred dollars a month or a thousand dollars a month uh, for an EV. Um, you know, most people don't have that in their budget in these high inflationary times, and especially when interest rates are where they are right now as well. So. Is, is the, the market, I guess, you know, Economics 101 says, well, if you build more vehicles uh, and people buy them, uh, then the prices automatically are going to go down. I mean, you know, I think the first VCR I bought way, way back in the 80s, I think it cost me $1,000. You can get them right. for about $29.95. I know it even uses them anymore now. They stream everything. <laughs> but the price went down considerably. And, and right. are you expecting that to happen with EVs too? Well, sure, exactly. I mean, I think the situation is, is that um, – you know, at some point there will be price parity or at, at some point EVs are likely to be cheaper than internal combustion engine vehicles. The problem is, is that nobody knows when that price parity point is going to be. And batteries are a significant component, price component of the vehicle. And, uh, you know, batteries have come down the cost curve quite rapidly. But over the last couple of years, again, because of demand for components and minerals and whatnot, uh, prices have leveled off and actually gone up. So we've got to get that equation solved. And then to the other issue you mentioned, uh, 
we have to get scale on EVs because that's really where we're going to get cost savings is producing mm-hmm. EVs at scale. And, you know, it's not like uh, automakers are holding back there. We're trying to build factories, uh, build battery factories uh, as quickly as we can, but it does take time. It takes, uh, you know, as you, you were alluding to, it takes about 15, 10 to 15 years, if not longer, to open up a new mine for battery components. It takes probably about three or four years to put a, uh, a battery plant in place. Um, takes maybe two or three years to convert a traditional uh, production line from internal combustion engine vehicles to electric vehicles. So, you know, we, regardless of uh, whether there's a zero emission vehicle mandate or not, it, it does take time to bring more vehicles online. Absolutely. Uh, David, a lot of challenges ahead, but uh, as you say, the industry has been up to it and they've made some huge strides already. Uh, Best of luck uh, with you and the industry in 2023. And thanks so much for spending some time with us this morning. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks, Bill. Happy holidays and same to you for 2023. And right back at you. David Adams, President and CEO of the uh, Global Automakers of Canada. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.